Welcome to the Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garrick Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Welcome back to the Real Triathlon Podcast. Guys, you know, we are recording on a Monday night. Monday night that we haven't been able to record on ever since we started this podcast. Do you guys know why? Tell me why. Because the Leafs have always gone to Game 7 in the playoffs, and they closed out their series last night, or two nights ago, and they moved on after six games. First time in 19 years. Last time I did that was my birthday when I was nine. So that's pretty exciting. But that's might, as well just, might as well just give them the cup now, I think. like I, Just yeah. save the hassle. So know, for right? someone who doesn't know much about hockey, even though he grew up watching hockey, what are they? What's next? Round the two. Round. <laughs> okay. So I thought it would be appropriate that we talked about this because Tamra, who is the darling of Tor- Toronto, uh, it's her episode today. So uh, you know, I figured I'd wear my jersey. I don't know if this is a video podcast, but I put my three hundred dollar Maple Leaf jersey on for the recording. All I can see is that it says milk on it. Yeah, that's their sponsor. <laughs> so even though Tamara is a Torontonian, I have a feeling she doesn't follow hockey that much. Just just a hunch. I bet she can list every player's stats for the last eight years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, anyways, um, let's move on because we got quite a bit to talk about and the interview was a uh, decent length. So, like we said, recording this Monday before a couple of big races that are happening this weekend. You guys are in one of them. That's uh, St. George, North American champs. How are you guys feeling about that? Let's uh, go through a little bit of a preview. I'm feeling friggin' rabbit like a dog and sore like an old man. Jackson? Um, let's see. How can I compete with that? Well, yeah, no, it's great, man. Freaking St. George is a lovely place to have a race. Can't think of a better climate, environment, you know, topography, geography, um, any other ographies. And uh, sixth time I'll be racing there. So should be should be good. I've been, the best result I've had there for the North American Champs was third. So I'm hoping to take a good crack at the win, you know, just go for it a little bit and just uh, take a bit of a risk if I have to. I think and, you're uh, going you're going to win this race. I just feel it right in the old testy. Which one? The good one or the one that's sometimes off? I can't tell anymore. I don't know. There's only one to me. Uh anywho. Nick is gonna be having a good day. I know it because he didn't go down to freaking Peru and Oh yeah. Should we talk about that at all? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about why Nick didn't go to Peru. Yeah, I, I suppose it's worth it just briefly. Uh, you know, had a full-on kind of taper week if she was going all right, and then packed up for the, the big trip, bags, bike, ready to go. Had my wife and I packed up, ready to take the hour and 40-minute drive to Las Vegas Airport from St. George. And, you know, typically in my whole entire life, anytime I've left a wallet behind, I've got like a little sensation on my neck, like, you don't have a wallet. And it didn't happen until about an hour and 10 minutes into that drive, which was pretty telling that I was not going to make the flight because 
no one can bring it in that amount of time. And by the time I got back to the airport, I would have missed the flight. They would have been boarding. So immediately went into damage control and started calling Delta. Was on a phone call for an hour holding, waiting to see if I could get on the next flight the next day, same time, which would have put me into Peru within like, like 9 a.m. or 10 a.m. in the morning on Saturday for a Sunday race. So during that hold period, I had texted a few people and kind of fielded my thoughts. And eventually I was like, this 15 hours with the travel one way, 21 on the way back. And <laughs> I'm not going to have really any time to get ready and shit, something will probably go wrong and I won't race anyways. Anyways, I just was like way better to stay home, bag that race and put it all into St. George, which I feel, I feel like that's the best thing I could have done. I feel great about it. My whole guts feel good about it. That's that story. Yeah. In hindsight, that might end up being like one of the best mistakes you've ever made, but you know, guys, this is a good lesson because it can tell you that even the most organized person in the world can fuck up. Yeah. <laughs> if this was Jackson telling this story, I'd be like, oh yeah, of course that happened. Yeah, he yeah left, but who's he left it in some grocery bag? Never missed a flight, never, you know, forgotten to go to a race. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time in like even throughout my military travel, everything that I've ever legitimately forgotten something that has caused me caused me to miss a flight so i'm gonna say it's a sign so then you get back to training get a better so then you could basically jump into seven to ten days of hard training rather than having to recover from a race and you know probably lose a little bit of fitness and whatnot i always hated the two-week race gap i try to avoid it because it's just an awkward gap i prefer one week or three weeks well and it even worked out better because I think we had a team meeting about a month and a half ago and you were like, Nick, I'm going to do golf coast the week after St. George. I already got the place booked. I got a car. Just let me know if you want to be there. And I was like, all right, I'll sign up. So I signed up and then I bought tickets to it like the week of Peru. So I was already booked and ready to go. So I was like, fuck it. It's going to work out great. It's going to be a nice old back-to-back race weekend special. Yeah. So that's that. But in any event, previewing, uh, training's gone great, man. Like biking's been awesome. Nick Nick's been training hard for like three weeks now, so he'll be ready. Yep. Uh, and then who's all there? So Lionel, Sam. Looks like Matt Hansen's gonna recover in time, hopefully from his uh crash at Texas. So he should be good to go there. Trevor Foley, um, and then I think Metzler. There's pretty solid list, but of course, the really, really biggest names are going to be in Ibiza. Ibiza, as they say. Ibiza, T-H-A. Yeah. Um, And we do have a start list there that is like massive. Like everyone is there, it seems like, which is cool. I don't even have the start list or anything besides. I bet. I think I know Annie Howe is going to be there. Tamara's going to go toe-to-toe with her finally, right? Yep. And then yeah, we'll see Ellie, that. You know, Ellie's there because she's been posting and I've chatted with her. So they had some crazy travel getting from Australia over there. My God. Um, and then for the boys, I don't know. Just everybody. Just just somebody back in St. George. They're there. Yeah. Except for Sam Laidlow. Uh, I heard that he's not racing because he's moving. What's that, Garrick? You, you froze on us there, bud? Looks like well, you 
while Garrett's frozen, yes, Sam Lindlow is moving, has some life stress going on or whatever, so he's not going to go. Must be some significant life stress going on. I'm I'm pretty sure he went on to the How They Train podcast to talk about it, so I'm sure you could go listen in on that if you want. But pretty surprising to me, to be honest, when he raced, you know, he raced that challenge race or whatever it was and won. And, uh, you know, all he would have to do is retain his fitness from that and have a good day. But sometimes there's stuff going on behind the scenes that you just got to well, accept it and let him move on. Moving is the worst moving funerals and weddings are like the most stressful things i've ever gone through so i can relate to that bullshit jack's yeah. moved about 400 times yeah the one time my wife or she was just my girlfriend at the time pretty much moved for moved us because i was like <laughs> i gotta go do a race and i remember like, that <laughs> all right i mean it was just it wasn't like as significant as like moving <laughs> houses it was an apartment to another place so no 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 no. the logistics going around the moving truck to begin with i heard the story just a van oh my god what montana had to do to move your shit wait which time which time was this was this when you were moving from from the apartment to victoria road townhouse yeah who moved you it was montana and you probably helped did you help (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. like two days moving you (laughs) jackson's gone racing (laughs) <laughs> I think I got fourth at St. Anthony's for that. Yeah, I think debacle. that was St. Anthony's. And uh, in any case, we should probably talk about St. Anthony's. Holy cow. Oh, yeah. We got ourselves. So Lisa Bacaris freaking been injured for what has it been? 15 months. She hasn't raced, something like that. Yeah. 14 months anyway. And she comes back and comes third at St. Anthony's Duathlon. That was a freaking ripper. And and she had the fastest bike split. Yeah. Unreal. Like, just to like kind of put that in perspective she biked 58 and change for the 40k it was super windy so it was like some of the probably the slowest bike conditions that that course has had in a long time and like that's some that's one of the fastest bikes but ever like usually the fastest woman is like in the 58s and she was able to do that in super windy so that's incredible and And obviously her biggest performance of her career so you know good for her and then obviously our boy mark dubrick not super stoked that there wasn't a swim, but he still managed a solid fourth place with some really fast running. Uh, on the dev squad, we had Rachel Mensch, who had, what, a seventh place, right? Six or seventh, yeah. Great job. And, uh, and her boyfriend, Vant, crashed out, unfortunately. I think, I don't know what happened there yet, but that'll that'll happen when it's windy and wet in St. Petersburg. Those roads are slick, and there's like 30 corners in the first mile. Yeah, it's a bit of a, and there's cobbles too, so that can definitely throw things off. But in any case, super successful, St. Anthony's. Um, I did that race freaking three times, four times, and I was like fourth, 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 seventh. And now this time it was freaking windy, no swim. It would have been a great thing, but I know it was smarter to just save for St. George. So, and then of course we should, we should mention Paula won and Jason West won on the men's side. So. Yeah, Jason's always wanted to win that, so good for him. What a ripper. And uh, St. George, if you're coming to town, you, I don't know, you'll you'll probably hear this, yeah, because Garrick's going to edit it immediately, probably. That's correct. Um, yeah, he works full-time for whatever we want him to do. So <laughs> uh, The water temp's going to be probably between like 65 and 70. Like It's kind of creeping up right now, and there was like really warm pockets and really cold pockets, so average... 
it said was about 65-ish, but I think I saw some 68s or something. Even Andre Lopez swam with us too, and his watch said about 68. And like people, for some reason at this race, just pretty much shit their pants over the water temperatures. That's all they care about. It could be torrential downpour, lightning, and whatever. They're like the hand of God could be bitch slapping people on course. And they're still like, oh, what was, what's the water temperature? I'm, I'm nervous. I'm like, well, it has been cold before. Like it, it has been, cause usually I get there race week and it's like 57. And then by race day, it warms up to like 61 or something. Well, no, no, no. Even like mostly it's been in the high, high upper sixties for like the past three or four years. It's been great. And yeah. there was only one year, maybe the first year you did it when it was like, 58 or some shit like that um but even that's also, not something to like lose your shit over that's just like you get in and you're like yeah oh, it's a little cold yeah I people i think it's just the like the facade around this event and it's like the apocalypse conditions that do kind of happen randomly but it is going to be like maybe it's supposed to storm this thursday who knows what will happen it's been windier than freaking witch's broomstick out here so i don't know what's going to happen uh, i can say the water temps probably aren't going to get super high but it's going to be 100 bucks wetsuit legal yeah well for age groups definitely for pros i would still say okay. so um i'm just checking out gotta look at the weather because that's what everybody really wants to know Ooh, it's hot there now wow yeah she used a hot ride today but it's supposed to be a high of 75 on race day now yeah, it looks cool for race day. Um, so what nine. course What course are they using? The same as the 70.3 Worlds course. So the same bike course. And what they've done at the reservoir is they've got like this little out and back section that's in the park and just right outside the first north exit. And you also, they changed the flow of traffic because normally you'll pull into the park entrance and shit is everywhere. There's a long line. People can't park or navigate. So they wrap you all the way around to the north side of the park, and you got to drive in now to try to eliminate some of that parking hassle. Um, and then the run course, you're still up and down diagonal a lot, and you run the golf course, and then you go down to that Vernon Werther Park. So it's the same okay. as Twenty Three Worlds. Last okay. year, they've had. I've hopefully they finally settle on a run course because they've literally changed it every single time. But this, the Worlds one was great. I think they. I think that was a perfect course, so I think it's smart to keep it the same. The The world's run course from the previous year was way too ridiculous with the downhills. Oh, yeah, it was like 15% for like seven steps and then down to 10. It was it was tough, but no, that's a smart move, I think. Um, the bike course is getting better every year. It feels like every year they like redo more roads, get smoother, so it's going to be fast one. It's one of those courses where it's like it's a hard course, but it's still fast. You still Just ride the, 203, 201. Like, guys are still ripping it. Yeah, for sure. So, anywho, it's a great course. It's the best freaking course on the circuit, in my opinion. And It'll be Jackson, myself, Mark, and Leslie. They'll all be coming on for RTS for this spectacular event. And Tamara will be running solo at Ibiza. Ibiza. Okay, and guys, Sunday, Ibiza. right? Yeah, that is, is that Sunday? I don't know. I don't, I'd like to watch it. That'd be great. If it was oh, the win actually the women's race is probably Saturday and the men's Sunday. So we should be able to watch it though because time change. It'll be actually no. I don't know how that'll work. It'll be six Wait, hours. No, the night. Is yeah. it? Is it the PTO race first or is it the ITU Long Course Worlds first? Great question. 
This is something I feel like we should know. We should. Oh, Cody Beals is racing that. ITU is. So is Joe Skipper. Ooh, nice. Those boys are going to have a good one. And hopefully Matt Hansen will come on the following episode to talk about his experience in Texas and getting taken out by competitors in the age group race and what that's like. I was taken out once by a volunteer, so I can talk my own shit. It'd be great. Yeah. Um, I think we should do predictions for St. George and Ibiza. Jackson wins St. George. Well. No problem. By three minutes. Uh, um, no, let, like let's let's take it serious here. Um, let me pull up the start list. Something I want to talk about is how nobody is talking about Alistair Brownlee racing this PTO race. It's all it's all Jan versus Blumenfeld. So like, is he not actually racing this race, or like what's no, he going is? On? I don't know. He is. I know he is. Well, the thing is, like. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, Jan's done quite a good job of, you know, m- keeping himself relevant, even though he hasn't really raced much lately. Um, but yeah, I think Alistair could race. I mean, Alistair hasn't really had a good day at the PTO events yet, um, but I do think he very well could. I don't know. I th- I think I feel like he's maybe even a bit more of a favorite than Alistair, just like with his skill set. I think Jan wins it for sure. He's going to be out front on the swim. He can get a gap. He's going to bike solo and probably break his hip again, but win. <laughs> I think, see, I think it'll be similar to that, but I think Alistair is going to go with Jan. And there's definitely someone we're forgetting here that'll swim with them and bike with them. And then I think Alistair can take Jan on the run. I don't think either of them are going to be in the top three. <laughs> It'll be whoever gets injured first on the run will not. Yeah. I really think it's going to be the Norwegians. Is Gustav like, there? No, Gustav's not racing. Oh, he's not? No. Well, I think Christian's the favorite. And then, um, but they're going to drop him in the swim and they won't let him back in the race. They're not going to drop That's him in the swim. I don't think. I don't know if Christian can swim with Jan or Ali. Yeah. If they really bigger. Oh, Canute will be there. Oh, yeah, that's true. Canute will be there. Jason West will be there. Yeah, I don't think Jason can swim in that lead pack. He's like a lead pack for like a St. George. Well, he can probably Wait, run himself there. into the lead almost. But Yeah, Aaron Royal is going to be there. Crap. All right, what about the women? Here's the star list. Okay, there's people. I don't know, man. J- Jason West could win this. I just I don't see... I don't see it breaking up too much on the bike. Like, I think he might have a small group that gets a little bit of time, but it's flat. Uh, I think. Oh, he's there's also Magnus Ditlev. Like, we can't really forget about him. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna torque it. All right, guys, make your predictions. Nick, you're on the top of my screen. You go first. Top three for the men, and then top three for the women. Jan Magnus Blumenfeld. Okay. I don't know the women's field. Tamara's going to win. Okay. Well, it's Ashley Gentle, Lucy Charles, Paula Finley, Daniela Reef, um, Annie Haug, Chelsea Sidero. Tamara is going to win. And then it'll be Ellie Salthouse and then Ash. <laughs> Ashley Gentle? Yep. Okay. All right. A, okay. If I, okay get any of them, if I get any of them right, I still get points. 
I think it's yeah, gonna well, be everyone forgets who who predicts what. So <laughs> yeah, it doesn't even matter. I think we even forget who we predict ourselves. Yeah, I think it'll be Blumenfeld, then West. Ditlev, then West. Ooh. And for the women, I'm gonna say Ashley Gentle. No, I gotta go. Yeah, Ashley Gentle. Then I think Lucy Charles and Tamara is gonna run snag her. a top three. She's gonna run her way from, you know, between eighth to fifteenth off the bike all the way to third. Yeah, it'll be a flat bike course. We'll see how her power is when she doesn't. I mean, she's got a crazy watt per kilogram advantage on the climb. So if it's not, yeah, hit, there are some good hills though. There's one good hill per lap. Is oh. there? Yeah. Um, okay. So like significant. Like I think it's like. 100 meters ascent or something all right garrick go you all got right. it. <clears throat> say it all right i'm gonna go i'm gonna call tamra for the win just because i don't want to bet against her um and then we're gonna go ashley gentle and ann Haug. so i'm gonna put all the runners in the top three because i want to see that battle i want them to all come off the bike together and just see them you know just do it and then for the men I'm going to go Alistair Brownlee, Jan Ferdino, Magnus Ditlev, no Blumenfeld on the podium. Is, um, is what's his, is Vincent Louis racing? Uh, I don't think so. I no, don't. Have the... He's focused on ITU now to go Olympic points. Okay. Yeah. I don't have there are some good wild card cards though. Like, uh, oh, used yeah, to flag, I think. And, um, Damn. Cam Worth. Is oh, he yeah. a wild card? Yeah. Man, Leo Berger should have gone, and he could have had a great day there. Yeah, I think Eustace Nischleg could potentially have a very solid race. Shit. All right, well, we'll have to check back on these predictions in 30 years and see if we ever got close. Yeah. All right, St. George then. Okay. All right. Uh, I'm not going to predict myself. I'm just going to leave myself out of it. Lionel. <laughs> That's yeah. Only okay, here I'll go. I'll go. We'll go backwards from what it was last time. There. So I'm going to go um laundry for the win cuz I never bet against Jack on this course. And then I'm going to go Sam Long, Matt Hansen. Ooh. And I think Lionel fourth. Interesting. And then okay, and then the women, I haven't actually looked at this. So um Sky Sky Monster, H. McBride, Jeannie Metzler, Meredith Kessler, Jackie Aaron, Danielle Lewis, Leslie Smith. Jeannie's been, r- r- I mean, she's looking fit. I've seen her a few times out and about. And she was, what, second one year? Second at Worlds here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our, I think Leslie Smith's going to have a ripper for sure. I think she's going to sneak into the top three. Okay, you're up for picking. Garrick, Go. I think Garrick's just actually frozen in that that he's, he? like, <laughs> <laughs> he's like stuck pondering, scratching his chin. Okay. All right, you go, Jack. Okay. I think it's gonna be um Jeannie, then I'm gonna say Leslie Smith second and Jackie Herring third. Damn it, that was like kind of where I was going. Um, you're not gonna do the men? Well, no, I can't predict a race myself in it. It's just yeah, it's fair. Um, I'll say for the women, 
I don't, I don't have the list in front of me. So all I remember is a few names. Uh, <laughs> I think Jackie for, yeah, I like Jackie for third and I like Leslie second. And that's Sky, Rach McBride and Danielle Lewis and Jeannie Metzler. I think Jeannie's for sure. Also my pick for the old Winsky. All right. I missed all of that because my internet's being. It's all right. We, you're like stuck like this. Oh yeah. So we were like, Garrick, you done thinking there? Well, well I you can't base your picks off me. I know when I'm frozen because both of you guys are frozen. That's that's fair assumption. Yeah. So right. um pick your women. All right. All right. Well, I think you guys had great picks there. Uh my women, I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna call Sky Monch for the win. Uh, I'm gonna give Jeannie Metzler just gonna run herself into second. And um let me close my eyes and make a pick here for, I'm going to say, wow, Meredith Kessler, Kessler's racing. Yeah. I'm going to say Jack, Jackie Herring gets third. Ooh, we all picked her for third. Oh, shoot. I'm telling Leslie that you don't like her anymore. Yeah, I think Leslie is going to get fourth. Well, that's, be, that's pretty nice. That's That'd be a all solid right. day. All right, so the, the next part of this whole series of uh, that you're going to continue to listen to because you're good friends and fans and also don't forget to follow our jackson and real tri squad youtube channels and give us a lot of love and patreon and give us a lot of money that's great we love it <laughs> um so tamara has done a great job for this interview of nicole van Buren. i think i hope i said that right and she is a former pro triathlete certified triathlon coach and entrepreneur in the bike industry which the reason why we wanted to highlight this episode is because that's pretty rare. You don't see a lot of women entrepreneurs in the bike industry. And she's co-founded the Canadian Brazilian wheel company, Elevo. And also she's worked with Phil White of Cervelo to develop her own SOAR, S-O-R racing wheels, which a lot of pro athletes are riding. So a great highlight um, by Tamara. So check in, hang out, enjoy the episode. Tamara does a great job. And remember, she'll she, it's like you're on the stand. She's like you're testifying and she's drilling you. She's gonna get the truth and nothing but the truth. So help me. <laughs> oh yeah, she's gotta take her lawyer skills lawyer. somewhere. Yeah, she's I was gonna say you have to explain that joke. Tamara's a lawyer by trade. <laughs> right. And J- also Jason West runs these wheels, Tamara, Dami, Jami Jam, Nikki from Canada. They got they sponsor a good a good group of pros. So it's always yeah, good to highlight a company that does yeah. that. Yeah, Andre Lopez too, I think. For the Brazilians. All right, so let's hop into that episode, right? Yep. All right, without further ado, let's roll into it. Hey, hello. I am Tamara Jewett here with Nicole Van Burden. Nicole is a former pro triathlete, certified triathlon coach, and entrepreneur in the bike industry. She co-founded the Canadian-Brazilian race wheel company, Alevo, and worked with Phil White of Cervelo to develop her SOAR racing wheels, uh, which I, I use in my races. So originally into basketball, Nicole ran in high school and with the same junior development track program that I started in through the University of Toronto. Um, she was particularly successful uh, at the university, uh, or sorry, when, when she then later went to the University of Toronto, she was very successful on their cross country team, which is dear to my heart and actually won a CIS gold medal and a CIS silver medal in um, 2002 and 2003. And 
Nicole and her brother, Chris got into, um, short course triathlons together in the early two thousands. Nicole balanced triathlon with a degree in kinesiology at the university of Toronto. Um, and eventually moved into long course triathlon competing in over 15 full Ironmans and many 70.3 races, um, with, uh, some top five and quite a few top 10 finishes, including two top 10 finishes at Ironman Canada, um, and some impressive, uh, Canadian duathlon national results. Nicole was first at, uh, in the elite under 23 category at Canadian duathlon nationals in 2003 and 2004. Um, so I met Nicole when she started helping me, uh, with, with my bike wheels, but also just my bike globally. Um, she's known in the Toronto cycling community for her excellent carbon repair and bike artistry. Um, and, uh, has become a very important and generous female mentor to me in helping me get more comfortable improving my bike setup, caring for my bike and problem solving any technical issues with it. So I'm very excited to talk to her today about her journey and experiences as a female entrepreneur in the bike industry. Um, so welcome, Nicole, and thank you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> Um, so Nicole, I read an article that suggested that cycling was the main hook for you to transition from, um, basketball and then more of a running focus into, um, triathlon. And, uh, it said that you and your brother were buying bicycles in a store in Toronto and that the owner encouraged you to come out and start riding and then get into the sport. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and, and whether bicycles have always been a big part of the appeal of triathlon to you. Yeah, but well, bikes have been in general, a big part of my life. So I've always loved them. Um, for Chris and I, so that's my younger brother. He's the one I used to race with. Um, the one thing, and my, my parents are pretty strict on school and attendance and all of that stuff. But one thing that my mom used to always do for my brother and I on the weekend of the Toronto bike show, my mom would write us the doctor's note, <laughs> like, please excuse them from school on this Friday um, so that we could make it to the Friday opening of the bike show, which is very odd. But it's also, you know, she it was that one thing that she allowed us. And it was the thing that we really, really loved. And, and I have loved for my whole life. And I got into cycling. Um, and like you had said, so to backtrack, um, I started out as a basketball player and, and I was pretty high level basketball and I went to U of T, played basketball in first year. And it was kind of that in between season, like my last year of high school, I had a, I had a hard year. So we had a lot of talent on our team and I was team captain that year, but there was a lot of like inter, con yeah, like conflict within the team and within the members and it was very hard for me and it was very frustrating and at the end of the season I just thought I just want to do something this summer where if I put the work in and I do horribly then that's fine and if I put the work in and I do really well then then that's awesome but I'm like the more you put in um awesome if you do well but you have nobody to blame but yourself if you don't do well or you don't put the work in so I tried something like endurance sport I used to 
I used to, like you said, I ran for um, the University of Toronto Track Club, the club team as a the junior development section of it when I was in high school, but that was more just for general fitness and to help with basketball. So it was an easy transition. And that summer after high school, uh, I got into tri triathlon and we started out, uh, we as in my brother, Chris and I, just with whatever bikes we had. And we did fairly well um, and just loved it and loved the training. And I love that whatever I put into it, you get out of it. So I kind of went into first year and I had no real intentions of joining the cross country or the track team for U of T. I went to play basketball and I did, I played the first season, but I also did cross country and that was a very hard year. I mean, there's usually like, they say there's a, you get a frosh 15 where between September <laughs> frosh week and Christmas, you gain 15 pounds. And I think I had the, the opposite reaction because <laughs> I was doing yeah. two varsity sports and I was also commuting by bike from, I wasn't on campus. So there was, there was a lot, um, but it was a good year. And then I had to pick after that. And I absolutely chose uh, triathlon because I just, I really loved it. And I ended up, uh, I ended up competing in worlds, I guess, as a, as a junior. Right. And in that, yeah, in that like, first year that I got into it, cause it was like under 20 was the cutoff. So as a first in university, I was still under that. Mm. And I just had, I really had no idea what the sport was at the time, but I kind of like found my way into it at the perfect time where I could still kind of get on that developmental curve and learn, but also compete at a high level. And then that just took me, took me into what eventually became long course triathlon and Ironman, half Ironman. Yeah. Awesome. I, that, I think I have a, a few questions from that. So, um, I, I guess it definitely, it sounds like, like cycling partly for you is yeah, you had a sense of control over it and sort of control over your own effort that you were putting in, in endurance. Mm -hmm. And, and then did you get into swimming sort of like later, like it was sort of like cycling yeah. was the passion and then you had some running to put into it. And then, and then, cause you had some really good duathlon results yeah. and what, what was the impulse to go from sort of duathlon to adding in the swimming as well? I think so duathlon, I started out as an almost non-swimmer. I, I started too late. So I didn't start out when I was in those developmental years where you're forming all your motor patterning and learning how to move differently in the water than you would on I dry land. I don't know. I don't know. I'm on a mission <laughs> to, to try to show that people can learn swimming. Like oh, <laughs> you definitely can. You absolutely can. I have come leaps and bounds since I stopped oh, racing yeah. because that's what I then focused on. And now I'm coaching. So that's what I help other <laughs> people do. But I wish I had like taken that step back and actually mm -hmm. taken the time to learn it. Mm -hmm. But this is also in the days before like internet was everywhere and videos and YouTube. And I mean, I didn't even have a computer in university. I was also late to the game for everything. <laughs> so um, it, learning was harder. Finding somebody to help you is harder. Um, figuring out what's right, what's wrong. And that whole feedback loop with swimming is tough because you can't, it's the only sport that I know of anyways, that you have no visual feedback. You swim and what you think you're doing is never what you're really doing because no. you can't <laughs> see all your limbs plus you're weightless. So it's different than your gravity feedback on land. And it makes, it makes learning or self 
directed learning, very tough, even if you read the books and you read the literature and you try and do what they say, because there's this, there's this, uh, um, miscommunication between brain, like uh, per perception and kinesthetic awareness in the water versus on land. So that was, that was, yeah, that was tough. So I wish I had done it earlier and that's why duathlon. So to answer your <laughs> this long way around about your answer, um, I got into duathlon because my swimming was slow to develop and I got good on the bike or pretty accomplished on the bike fairly soon, but I had also been riding all my life and I had a lot of strength-based conditioning that came from basketball so mm. that was sort of an easy transfer and I was also very good at just like working like I always was good at doesn't matter the pain doesn't matter if I'm gonna <laughs> just just go so that helps out in cycling in a weird way it doesn't work as much in swimming because your form breaks down and in running fairly similar because your form breaks down you get injured um, in cycling it it worked to my advantage and I got um, pretty, I became strong pretty quickly. And I also like, I, it's of my nature to become like a sponge. I really love learning like anything I can. And I really love watching and, and learning from people who are better than me. So I always rode with people who could kick my butt <laughs> in the warm up. So mm -hmm. I spent my first year on the bike getting dropped within 10 minutes of the warm up, And, and it took months before I hung on for a whole ride. Actually, it took probably most of a first year, but then it becomes this thing where you hang on once and now it changes your mindset. So mindset was a big part of it. And now it like, it's just such a big motivator. So I love the bike for both the challenge and the, also the technical aspect of learning pedal stroke and position mm. and what muscle groups you're engaging. Um, and then also because it was a hard thing and the yeah. running was my background because I ran in U of T. So I did track and cross country all the way through so that that was an easy transfer. So, um, that was, I, I focused on the duathlon, not because I loved it, but because my swim was still in those like kind of learning stages. Okay. So it was a bit of a way to showcase your strengths while you were still bringing your swim up to, to focus yeah. on triathlon a bit more. Yeah. yeah I, I think something that really comes across in what you're saying that I think leads really well and in, into sort of a discussion about what you do uh, as an entrepreneur in, in the cycling industry as, as well is your, um, your sense of curiosity and, and sort of self drive and motivation. So, um, I had asked you before this interview a little bit about how you went from being an athlete to being an innovator. And, and if you can talk a bit about that, to me, some of what you said about just your, your curiosity about bike equipment and the sort of creative ways you were thinking about it and the, the questions that you were asking sounds like it comes from a similar place to the way that you, mm -hmm. um, you know, really just like tried, like taught yourself <laughs> these sports and pushed yourself to just, um, you know, be around people where you could soak up knowledge. And, and even if you were mm -hmm. starting out, uh, feeling a bit behind, just like hanging on and hanging on and hanging on until, until you were, you know, an expert at it yeah. yourself. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So when I, when I was racing, one thing that never made sense, and this was also, I'm going to say back in the day, it wasn't that long ago, but cycling and the industry and all of the equipment that we have right now, it's come like so far in the past even decade. And now everything is lighter. Like we've gone from race, use, race, sorry, race wheels used to be uh, like tubular. You glue your tires on. So you had a dedicated set of race wheels and you had a dedicated, well, all your other wheels were training wheels. And your race wheels, you kind of had to pick. It couldn't be this sort of transitional wheel that you could use in several different races. You couldn't use them in training plus racing. Now you can, so options have opened up. It's become even easier um, to innovate and improve wheels in a hurry. Um, back then, I always remember being advised harshly, <laughs> very harshly, like, don't you dare use that against certain equipment. And it was like, first of all, like full disc wheel. And this was back before things became lighter. So carbon has come a long way. Um, and that's just as a material and the technology used to create carbon wheels and the understanding of like stresses and, and like the, the whole engineering behind it has come a, so far. Um, but, but back then it, it was more of you had to pick, so this is going to be my set of race wheels. This one I'm going to race on this course. And there was a very small, <laughs> there were very limited options that I could pick from when it came to race wheels. So I wanted to go faster. You would pick a set of wheels that was lighter than your training wheels. So you save weight, acceleration is sped up, um, and you can race a little bit faster. You feel a little bit sharper. And um, things that were of an aerodynamic nature were much heavier and they were far more susceptible to crosswind forces and instability as a result, especially if you were a lightweight rider. Um, but that's not just like who I was. It's not just me. Like, and this is why the problem exists in the first place. I'm looking at, well, I am kind of the norm like i am either equivalent to a male who's beginning and doesn't have the the technical ability to handle a bike in crosswinds or all females um or anybody that doesn't have the power output or the weight uh, on the bike like their physical body mass to s help stabilize against um any sort of crosswind forces that might throw you out of balance um so that whole trade-off of always pick um aerodynamics over weight only went so far because it didn't make sense for me and i was told well that doesn't count for you and i was like well i did nobody ever sit back and think isn't there a solution to this problem because i felt like i was not like a small niche market i felt like i was that like 90 percent of the cycling or racing population who was buying bikes and wheels and racing equipment and the the industry was not focusing on that like they're they're focused on tour de france and and developing wheels and frames that can be raced to their max potential by the best riders in the world and or most... by the best male riders in the world in yes by the best <laughs> exactly exactly and it, especially if it's a hilly course, a windy course, and 
and none of these things benefit. So he, you look at this wind tunnel data that the manufacturers put out and it says this wheel or this frame will save you X number of seconds over a 40 kilometer time trial. And that's nice, but that is relevant for a very small slice of the cycling or racing po population. And for most of them, they'll get a percentage of that claimed benefit. And for a lot of them, it will be detrimental to their performance. They'd be better off racing on their training wheels or a, a shallow set of wheels where they don't get an aero benefit, but at least they're lighter. So that inspired me to like figure did like, there's gotta be a solution. And it started out very like, the whole process started out to like rudimentary beginnings and it really did just go step by step. Um, but right away I was like, how can you figure out something that is stable in wind? So it had to, for me, it had to absorb. Mm -hmm. So it had to be morphable. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even know how to describe that word back then. I was just like, it has to like not <laughs> be hard or rigid. And it also had to be lightweight. And then I always saw it right from the beginning as like an exoskeleton endoskeleton. So a structural interior and that exterior served the purpose of absorbing crosswinds and giving it an, the most aerodynamic shape possible. Yeah. And, and so as you were thinking this through, like, were you expressing, um, this sort of concern you had about why is there, why aren't people developing the right equipment for me? And, and what, what were people's reactions when you were sort of raising this as an issue while you were sort of starting to think through it? Nobody could answer that question. <laughs> so nobody could, because it also didn't exist. And it, it, that was a hard question because I'd ask it and they say, well, you know, like this is the equipment that's available and this is what there is. And this is the fastest wheel. And there is this overall feeling that here's the like quote unquote fastest wheel, or this is, this is the be all and end all in cycling. If you want to go fast, you get this. And there really wasn't that transfer of like sitting back and thinking, well, per person or per cyclist, does that work out? Like, is yeah. it a good match? Because it never was. And I, I felt like there wasn't much sort of thought that went into that whole situation. It was just yeah. like, here's race wheels, they're lighter or they're more aero. And there's always going to be this trade-off. Yeah. They're going to be heavier or more unstable but they're in theory faster well and, and the right weather conditions <laughs> what i find so impressive for with you nicole is that you um you then took it and basically were like okay i need to figure out the answer to this and yeah. if i can't if i can't find someone and it seems like you have that impulse in a lot of areas and i think something that's particularly impressive is um you don't have sort of like a formal engineering degree, but you've kind of gotten yourself to a place with all of this where you're talking through. I know, I know that you've sent back and forth with my, my partner, Chris, sometimes who, who has an engineering PhD, some fairly like yeah. sophisticated engineering data <laughs> discussions back and forth. Yeah. And, and I kind of, when he's questioning some of my choices and equipment, I'll like refer him to you to like speak each other's <laughs> language. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, what like 
how was that completely self-taught? I know, I know I realized last summer that your, your dad does a lot with sort of model airplanes. Like, was that an influence? Like where, where does this impulse and sort of ability to push yourself to learn like that come from, do you think? Right. So I, and yeah, connections are a lot. And I grew up, you know, my, my parents don't do, they don't cycle. They don't, they don't do sports, but my dad did a lot of weird things and not weird weird to me and weird to most people especially most athletes so he was in in yachting um like the canada's cup boats and all of that which is like and then there's america's cup boats um and that's that's one way of let's say using air and airflow in a very different way than cycling uses air and airflow or sees it and sees the problem or finds a solution from um where cycling is wind tunnel and like aerospace stuff or airplanes aviation and so aviation was my dad who's quote-unquote a pilot <laughs> he has pilots meetings every month um he flies rc <laughs> airplanes and um so there's very cool things about that because i grew up in a household where there was like airplanes all over the place like a hundred of them like, and I saw a lot of that stuff and materials and how they're constructed and designed. So that was an easy transfer because I just, I just grew up with it. And then he also was a very high level sailor. So I grew up hearing all the stories and also he's still very well connected with his past sailing, you know, buddies, teammates, whatever you would call them. And I'm, I've reached out to a whole lot of them and like probed them um for answers or ask them too many questions because when i started this whole thing i was like well those are those are two sports or industries that develop their or design their not products but they're like i mean ships and airplanes Mm -hmm. and and they're developed to use the wind so they take advantage of these principles that exist like lift forces and they do it in the best way possible so that's the first thing i did is i you know looked to that because there's something that's not happening or not being looked into in the cycling industry so creating lift was was one thing um and i was also not a so i was well connected because i knew a lot of sailors (laughs) and uh i knew a lot of people who built and designed airplanes, even if they are of the model type. So there was a lot of people around that I could just ask endless questions to. Um, and I'm highly, highly curious and I'm also not afraid to ask people questions. And I also find that the way I went about asking them questions is I didn't say, what is the answer to this? I said, here's a problem. Um, and how would you solve it? Like, I know what I'm thinking. And I know how I would do it based on my limited knowledge, which is within my own lens of experience and viewpoint and what I've dealt with and seen. And then I ask people of that do things I don't even understand. And now they understand like wind forces from a whole other viewpoint or level. So I want to know, how would you solve this problem? I don't want to know what's the answer to my question. How, mm-hmm. how would you design this thing? Or how would you make this like this? I, I just said, here's a problem. How would you do it? And I, some of them didn't love my line of questioning because 
it was very ambiguous and they want to know what I'm getting at. <laughs> They'd be like, just ask me the question. I'm like, no, 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 I just, you're actually just helping me understand. I'm, I'm problem solving as we're talking. Um, so there was a lot of people who I used in that way and they were super helpful. Um, so I was very fortunate in that way that I, I knew people that were in different. Yeah. And, and such an interesting mix. You'd have both yeah. like the sailing, yeah. the sailing sort of line of thinking and the airplane line of thinking. And... Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it was, and then the engineering part just, just that kind of came because as I was problem solving, um, again, like I, ha- I went after and I'll ask questions to anybody, but uh, like lots of engineers and yeah. I want to know what they do, how they do it, why, and a lot of things I find that engineers sometimes are too constrained in their thinking because it's like, it's like a very specific line of teaching and thought process and how you do things. Um, but I love it because they use materials and properties and um, data and that like load forces and resultant forces like that was very interesting to me. So I like, through my prototyping, I've had to find materials or adhesives or things that did weird things that I don't even know. Like I, I'm like, I have to solve this problem. I need something that does something. And mm-hmm. I have no idea what that thing is, but I researched things. I've read more data sheets than <laughs> I know to do with. So I've, I, I, I have a lot of depth of knowledge that's gone. You know, I've been working on this whole thing for 12, 13, maybe more years since I started. And you just, you get, you get better and you learn more and um, your depth of knowledge becomes greater as you go. Yeah. And that, that's such an interesting point too, of like coming at it, not having had sort of the, you know, rigorous, but sometimes constraining, I, I guess I can feel this sometimes as a lawyer too, maybe like professional training that does teach you to think a certain way and, and sort of yeah. come at it um, with like a, a clear problem you wanted to solve, but a very open mind about, about how to do that and each piece of knowledge sort of being gained to, to put into that. I guess I have some other questions about sort of specifically being a, a woman in the bike industry, but one that I want to ask that kind of ties into this is, um, it makes sense to me knowing that you're friends with my coach, Suzanne, that you also have some real artistic strengths. And I know you're a very good painter and think very creatively as, as well. And so I think it sounds like from what you're saying that that's probably also something that influences your thinking or that probably, um, the, that naturally mixes into this. I was, cause I was going to ask like, having that very creative side, but I know you're very rigorous and sort of scientific about a lot of what you do with bicycles and just how do you feel those two things go together or or don't go together in ways? Um, Well, everything in biking is very high detail and fine tuned and like, yeah, high tall, like everything. So that is very much like the fine detail work in whether it's fine arts or sculpting or anything like that. So any of those creative um, paths that I would have gone down in the past. Like I took visual arts all my life. Um, and that was a skill set that has helped me a lot. And it's, it, and it's also led to jobs that I've had in the past that have also had beneficial results. So I've worked in like the design and graphics industry before, um, for a long time. And this was like, 
before I started this whole project and like sort of towards the end of when I was racing and it was like, so visual, so design, mm-hmm. but also it was the applications. So we would manufacture things. So it was like signs and graphics. So I'd be up on scaffolds, putting things up. And I always did like all of the hands-on hardware and the weird construction stuff, but I also did like um, vehicle wraps. So, you know, when you see like a a bus or a vehicle that has this like whole full wrapped yeah. logoed yeah. thing on it. Like I used to do that. So applying those, and I still have, like even last year I did one, I helped somebody who was, who runs his own business because he needed somebody with experience. I was like, sure, I'll help you wrap a car. Um, but it's like learning, like that's very weird, fine detail work of understanding like interactions between heat and stretch and materials and bending and forming, especially as it relates to the graphics that's on it. You don't want to like this warp in your, mm. <laughs> your, your uh, printed design because you heated or stretched it too much. Yeah. Um, so I, I did a lot of that very strange um, detail work that it was, I don't know, it's, it's not a niche, but it's, it's just odd, but it's also helped in weird ways. It's like the more you work with other materials and solve problems in other ways, like the ways that you solve problems of like how to put something on or how to manipulate a material um, or how to form something or what materials to use. So for me, like even finding materials to prototype with, I'm like, oh, there's this thing that exists. And I know that because I'm like, I, we used to use those in, you know, in this mm-hmm. line of work. And I've had a lot of odd jobs where we use a lot of odd <laughs> things. So I'm very familiar with like every aisle of the Home Depot and every, like everything that all of these weird uh, supply, um, like industrial supply um, companies sell. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's good. It's been an asset because I knew that they existed from the start. And that was just based on, you know, weird coincidence of things I've done in my past. Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely, but I always find you're so, um, I don't know, you're such a great source too. I think to me sometimes with just, yeah, like sourcing different things, especially during the pandemic when some of the supply chain was disrupted. And, mm-hmm. um, I feel like you also just had a lot of creative ideas for me for, well, you can't buy this bike part right now. How are we going to make it? And what's the cheapest yeah. way to do that? <laughs> yeah. Just um, get this thing and do this with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. I guess that also feeds into like your carbon repair and just your ability to work with materials like that really is quite amazing. Like I was actually just, uh, picking up a, a bike from, from Trek Berry the other day that had been damaged, uh, falling off of a, a bike rack in St. George and, and the mechanics there were exclaiming at what an amazing job you had done repairing it, that it, it felt so strong and they couldn't even see where the damage had been now. And they, they were very impressed. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, and, uh, yeah, which which maybe brings us quickly into just some questions about sort of being a, a female entrepreneur in the bike industry, because it seems like, um, you know, I was particularly pleased to have the mechanics in Trekberry exclaiming over my, like, uh, I don't know, bike repair done by a, a women mentor <laughs> situation, because yeah. it, it does seem like, you know, like, it's still a bit of a slow process for, for women to make more 
inroads into the biking industry and then notoriously, I guess, even to sort of feel sometimes a little uncomfortable in, in bike shops or, or just, just to feel like a bit more ownership of that environment. And, and like, clearly that's something that you've, um, excelled at have do you feel like you've you've faced any sort of difficult barriers in getting there or um or like how how have you do you think you've succeeded there how has that journey gone for you sort of as a, a woman as well um I I was lucky and then this is one thing I mentioned to you too in like our background notes but um I grew up with three brothers <laughs> So <laughs> I was like the odd man out that my whole environment was, was boys and just like, it just did what they did and kept up. And that was my expectation. And, and again, like mindset is everything, but it like perspective is also everything and your limitations for the most part, like I understand that they exist and people will always judge and try to limit based on, you know, if you're female or male, um, or make assumptions is probably more accurate. Um, but, but I think I was lucky in the way I was both raised and that I had only brothers because I did not grow up with that mindset that there was limitations imposed upon like girls over boys when you're growing up or women over, over versus men. And it, made it easy for me to just carry forward and I always just felt internally like in my own head as if I was just a human and so was everybody else mm -hmm. so I didn't interpret any feedback necessarily as being they were judging me or saying no or saying what are you doing like you know questioning um based on me being a female versus a male like had it been were, would the answers have been any different if I if I was a uh, male versus female? I don't know. I don't really care either because I was just after answers. <laughs> and really, I was like, no, you're not going to give me that. Okay, so where, where do I go next? And that was kind of my mindset. And I didn't let any of it deter me. Um, I was also surrounded by good people and good family and friends who supported me. So I was very lucky in that way that I I never really got down on myself because I just always, always followed sort of what I thought, my passions and, and just like look for answers and everything and just kept asking questions. If they didn't want to answer them or if they just asked more questions like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And you don't know anything or why would you think you could do this? I'd be like, I would shut it down pretty quickly <laughs> um, because I did have some of those situations where they'd be like, who are you and who is helping you? And um, I'd say like, well, nobody, but very quickly, I know you're not the mind that's, that's I, that is workable for me. So mm -hmm. I can only get limited information out of you. That's helpful to me. And I'll try and get that. And then I'll leave and I'll find better people. Um, like, just don't, don't let it get you down. And I never cared about, you know, fail. Like, you have to fail your way to success. So that was my whole process is like, I mean, prototyping, every prototype fails until suddenly it doesn't, or you don't get the hoped for benefit until suddenly you do. But that's also where it goes the other way where you get, you're like hoping for this benefit and you're like, wow, what's this other thing that now I'm seeing? Um, yeah. And I, so I've, I've been lucky enough 
that I've had a good support system and I've not let the negative stuff get me down or deter me. I've very quickly just said, nope, not the right person. They're close-minded. So I'm, I want to think that I'm not closed-minded and I'm looking for people who are like in, inspired by even curiosity. And, and that's a big thing. And it's, it's also like, I've come across a lot of people and they've helped me right from the start and they continue to, and they, they still follow, um, you know, the whole project, which is, it's really, it's a good feeling and it, and it helps support you, your continuation through it all. Um, even though it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think your persistence and your, um, your persistence is so admirable. And then it seems also like you have a really good ability to just not let in the stuff that isn't helping you. And and so that you're putting your energy into finding the people who will help you, the answers that you need. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think that's really admirable too. I think that's something I'm always striving for, but it's, it's hard for me sometimes. So I think, you know, I hadn't, I've, I've mostly had good experiences around bicycles, I guess, but I, I had one experience where I was buying a new bicycle as a pro triathlete and my partner, Chris, who is not a pro triathlete and does not need this bicycle and did not have a TT bike at the time was yeah. buying it with me. And the people at the bike shop were explaining everything about the bike that I was buying with my money to, to, to Chris and not, <laughs> not to me. And yeah. And I found that, and it's, it's, you know, I think it sounds like your answer would be like, we'll just insist on continuing to talk to them. And if they're not the most helpful bike people go and find other helpful bike people, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but I did find it a little tricky to insist on doing that. And I think trying to get past to the self-consciousness of like, to me, yeah, in some ways, Chris does know more about bicycles and I'm still learning, but I want them to talk mm-hmm. to me so that I am the one learning, but I can see why they're talking to Chris because I feel like I don't know what I'm talking talking about so how like what what is your your advice for that kind of situation I mean I know for me too I've been so grateful to have you as a a sort of mentor in the background because I think you're always so respectful in the way that you answer Mm -hmm. my questions and I always feel um so you give me such thorough answers I feel so comfortable going to you with them yeah yeah I think the biggest thing is like ask questions I think too many people who don't know something and they go to somebody who does know something um, like a an expert in something like even going to a bike shop where there is an expert there that can help answer your questions but don't just say I need this problem solved it's also like ask questions because I I've also worked in a bike shop and it's better I like I'm a coach as well and you know some of my favorite athletes are the ones that always ask the questions because I know like it goes both ways so when somebody asks me something like an athlete asks me a question as a coach and then I explain the answer sometimes it's a question that I have not answered before or in the way that they asked it and when you speak something out loud, there's this weird way of having this newfound understanding of the thing that you just said that you knew, but you never put into words. So it helps your understanding of everything in general, but that goes with any expert in anything. So when you go to a bike shop, don't be afraid to ask questions. It doesn't matter what you know, if anything, like that's how I started out. I knew nothing, but I also couldn't afford to pay somebody. So I just asked. Mm -hmm. And when you ask questions, somebody will explain it to you. 
And again, if their answers are like they shut you down or they don't want to answer your questions or they don't want to deal with you, then they're probably also the wrong person to bring your bike to. Yeah. <laughs> but ask because you also want to know how to take care of your bike. Like if it's bike specific, it's important. It's important that you ask the questions because it's important that you understand your bike. The more you and your bike become like one and kind of seamless, the faster you're going to ride and the faster you're going to race and the better you're going to feel on your bike. So following your own curiosity is the, like a really big thing, but also don't hold back from doing that. Um, and now like, we're also very fortunate in that, like in the way that technology and the world has evolved, there's YouTube videos on everything. There is like Wikipedia on everything. There's now AI, there's, there's so much information out there and you can even take, I'm like, and I've taken advantage of so much of this, like every Harvard cap, class and like University of California, like all of these and um, MIT, all of their classes are available for free online. You mm -hmm. can't get a degree in it, but you can take them and you can watch the courses and the some like you can learn. So the learning, like the answers are out there. Um, and that just has to do with like this wonderful world we live in, you know, yeah. where we have internet <laughs> and we have this ability. So ask questions, be curious because curiosity always leads to information and then just further understanding. And you understand, the more you understand everything else around you, the more you understand yourself as well. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I love your point there about, um, you know, approaching something with curiosity being, and, and not not feeling like you need to start out knowing the answer. If you don't know the answer, asking about it, not only being something that will, um, you know, teach, teach you and get you the answers you need, but that actually might produce, uh, you know, a better response from the person that you're dealing with, that they will respond positively to your curiosity rather than being judgmental that you don't know something as long as you're mm -hmm. showing some kind of eagerness to, to mm -hmm. learn more about it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think I need to let you no go. You know, it's a crazy <laughs> schedule. And I so appreciate you being on. I was actually just wondering though, just before you go, you had sent me something and some of the questions I was asking about, about how yeah. your dad used to bribe you from races for uh, races <laughs> as a kid. And I, I just love yeah. that story. And it seems like it is something that's contributed to this sort of really uh, constructive mindset that's allowed you to succeed as an athlete and then also as an entrepreneur. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you can just just describe that quickly for us before. before yeah, <laughs> so I, I think it also altered my viewpoint of what failure is or what success is. So my dad, so my parents, you know, there was four kids, like three at, three at the time when we were really young, but um, like we didn't get allowance or any of of that stuff. So coming by money was very rough. And my dad used to bribe my brothers and I, if we did any races, um, we would get $1, you know, which seems like nothing, but when you're a little kid or, you know, even in high school, I, I took advantage of it all the way until university when you're, um, so he gave us $1 for crossing the start line. And what that meant is that we said, you know, you say internally, your internal dialogue is, I think I want to do this. I want to take on this challenge and you do the training or whatever is required to get yourself to the start line. So you get a dollar for crossing the start line, which meant you started the thing you set out to do. And then you get a dollar for crossing the finish line, which meant that you 
finished the thing you set out to do, you accomplished that goal, that whole goal, that everything comes full circle at that point. And then you get $1, which makes it a perfect score of three bucks, $3 payday. You get $1 if you set a personal best, which meant you've done something better than you ever have done before. And really that's all you can compare anything you do in life to is did I do it better than I did it yesterday or last week or ever. And that's, that's a super win because um, like there's this quote that's like comparison is the thief of joy and it really is. And it goes across everything in life, but also in sport. And too many kids I think are um, discouraged from continuing through sport because they start out and they see how their peers are doing and they see how they're doing in relation to their peers. And if they don't do well, they're like, I'm not good at that. I'm not going to do that. So my whole thing was, Hey, I got three bucks. That's perfect. And I had no money. So now I have money <laughs> and, and it worked back then. And it's still and it's, and I think it helped shape uh, my mindset and psychology in a way, especially as it relates to sport where, uh, whereas like I'm, I'm only competing against myself. And it's awesome when you show up and there is this super strong field of athletes on the start line because they're the, just these like carrots that are going to, for you to chase or the, that are going to push you to do something that you didn't think you could do before. But you can still cross the finish line and get that whole, you know, $3 in, yeah. in So you do all you can do. It doesn't matter if you, you know, your finish placing is really comes down to who's on the start line to begin with. Yeah. You know, how big or small is the race? It's like, if you, you set out to do something, you put in the work, you do the thing, you cross the finish line and you did better than you have in the past. Then that is like, that's everything. Right. And it goes as it goes, it goes for everything in life. So it's not just in sports, but it's in anything you take on. Everybody's bad at first. I was horrible when I was in <laughs> elementary school. Like I was always, and when I started triathlon, I started out in the, the triatries and then I was okay there, but then I went into like sprint distance. I did, I had a mountain bike at first. I came second last in my age group in every race for my first year. I didn't care <laughs> because yes. I still got $3. Everyone was technically a PB because I kept getting better. Um, um, and then I, and then I got a road bike. <laughs> yeah. I love, it's like your, your, your dad rigged the prize money system for you to create the, yeah. the like, <laughs> most productive incentives rather than that. Lowest prize money ever. <laughs> Unfortunately, but, but effective. And I think, yeah, when you're that, when you're younger too, $3 is, it feels like a lot yeah. more autonomy than you have without yeah, it. it. So it is, it's also nice recognition in a weird way. Like yeah. you need the recognition. I didn't need it, but I'm like, you know, you liked at the end of the day, you put your hand down, you're like, pay up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I did <But> this thing. <laughs> It's like a, a yeah. very, a very thoughtful form of bribing your children. So that, that's a great, exactly. <laughs> it worked. It kept me in sport long after I should have. So. Um, <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. Really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, I thank you. <laughs> thank you. For, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for interviewing me. And thanks for having me on the podcast. This is awesome. Yeah, no, I think yeah. it's, it's great for more people to be able to hear a bit more of your story. And I know I, I benefit so much from all of this knowledge you've, you've gained and, and the support you've giving, been giving me. So I, I really appreciate that. I don't know. It goes, it goes both ways. I love, it's super exciting watching your whole journey. And it's like, <laughs> I'm doing a, 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 a slope with my hand right now. I'm like, it's, it's great. Like it's, it's been, it's been so inspiring. So it, it makes me want to work harder, find more answers. And yeah, you've been, 
you've been a huge contributor to you know, Label and SOAR and all that we do and all we aspire to do. So huge thanks there. Yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. It's yeah. Good, yeah. good team that we have going. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay. Okay. Good night, Nicole. <laughs> Take care, Tamara. Bye. I got ish to do, flying through the sky in my parachute, dancing on the couch like I'm Tommy Cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through.